Hey, welcome back to Well That's Interesting. The Both of these are a wild ride, but in completely different ways. Edition today is episode 153, when a council of leeches predicted storms and surviving the worst tornado in U.S. history. My friends, where's the lie? <laughs> Did you not just respond by quietly saying to yourself, a council of what? And got... God damn, the worst tornado? Yes. Yes, indeed. Today is going to be quite the day, being equal parts quirky, unusual, and seemingly impossible. In the first half of the show, a contraption. I'm sure most, if not all of you out there, have never heard of or seen before. It certainly was one of a kind. It went by several names, one of which is the Tempest Prognosticator, and when you take the literal definition of these words, you get a sense, no pun intended, of what this thing was meant to do. Tempest, referring to wild storms, and prognosticator, a person who foretells or prophesizes a future event. But, my radiant business goose, this machine was not human, nor was it made of any human parts. Um, it was filled with another animal. Yeah, you guess it, leeches. And uh, we're going to talk about when it was made, why the fuck it was made, and who made it. And did it actually work? Could these creatures accurately predict hell on earth? Well, we are totally going to answer these questions. And I'm going to have photos available on our social media stuffs. So you need to see this thing to believe it. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's kind of elegant and grotesquely beautiful, kind of like this show. It's, it's, it is a sight to behold. Then after the break, an actual storm, so horrific on every level, I'm talking wind speed, distance, destruction, a tornado so awful and legendary, its name still brings tears to the eyes of the folks who survived and live to this day. It was called the Tri-State Tornado, and it happened just under 100 years ago, and nothing has compared to it ever since. So, you know how things go on, well, that's interesting. Uh, this means we must ask ourselves, could we survive it? That's right. After the break, it's everyone's favorite segment. Let's read from a book, motherfucker. And uh, <laughs> you bet your frightened little booty, it is the latest and greatest by Cody Cassidy, How to Survive History. Again, this isn't a sponsored segment. This is not a commercial. I just love this fucking book. And you, you need it. You just need it. On, on page 183, we'll be transported back to the earliest 20th century, to Middle America. And it's not the time and place you need to be scared of, it's the weather. And I'm going to reveal details about a tornado that seems preposterous, like this shouldn't exist on Earth. That's how bad it was. And we are going to be in the middle of it. We're, we're going to find out what we could do, if anything, to survive the worst tornado in U.S. history so far. That's coming up. And uh, oh, by the way, I'm Jill Chacha. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to the flock, my equally impressive business goose. I'm going to need you to uh, charge up your favorite time machine and dial it way the fuck back to the 1830s. Yeah. Specifically, it's 1832. And we're sitting at a candlelit table alongside the extremely appropriate, appropriately named George Merriweather. For real. George Merriweather. Now, George is the kind of guy who is just filled with ideas. 
seemingly bursting at the seams with uh, innovation. But to be honest, most of these ideas are not all that great. I mean, don't get me wrong, George is absolutely a humanitarian. He's coming from a great place. Um, he's currently studying to be a doctor at the University of Edinburgh, and his heart is fixated on improving the everyday life of the everyday person. The essay he's working on right now is titled, quote, The Means of Maintaining Uniform Temperature and Supporting Fire Without the Agency of Wood or Coal, end quote. That's, that's an awesome problem to tackle in the 1830s. As you could imagine, my dear young business goose, burning wood and coal in a rickety home at this time wasn't the cleanest nor the safest. So George had an idea. He designed... <laughs> I'm already laughing about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> he designed what he called um, the platina lamp, which was described to, quote, keep burning for a fortnight on an economical mixture of pure alcohol and whiskey at the cost of one penny for eight hours, end quote. My friends, <laughs> my friends, that's a cocktail. Um, it's a cocktail you should absolutely not light on fire in a house overnight. Um, again, he's coming from a good place, but damn, thank God that never caught on. Uh, instead, George finished his medical degree by 1835. He then worked as a family doctor in the seaside town of Whitby, England, and by 1849, he was a surgeon, as much as one could be a surgeon at that time. Uh, your basic medical toolkit would have included the usual scalpels, tweezers, razors, and scissors, but doctors would have also carried catgut for suturing and bandaging as well. Yeah, uh, lots of organic material was used, like human hair, horse hair, and even fiddle strings were options when stitching up a patient. And of course, my clairvoyant business goose, you see this coming. Leeches were also used. Now, I'm not exactly sure how much of the science was known back then, but medical staff saw the, saw the correlation between these creatures and how they prevent blood clots. How blood just keeps on flowing out of the body when they are attached. And it's true. They do secrete peptides that act as anticoagulants. Now, if this was exactly known or not, in any case, this bloodletting was the go-to bonanza for anything that ails you in the 1800s. So George, the old family doctor, sure had a number of these little guys around. And George, ever inquisitive, also took note of some strange behavior exhibited by them at certain times. Quote, he observed that the medicinal leeches he used to work with behaved differently when the weather got worse. Housed in small glass jar jars of water, a leech would lie relaxed at the bottom when the weather was fine, but several hours before the skies became cloudy and the wind started blowing, the sucker would show signs of agitation. If rain was coming, it would move out of the water. If a storm was imminent, a leech would curl itself into a ball and remain thus for its duration. Once the weather had settled down, the leech would return to the bottom of the bottle." End quote. From Kushik Patawari of AmusingPlanet.com. My friends, my friends, can you see it now? Can you see the look on George's face as the idea of all ideas washed upon him as he lived through his own very eureka moment? The year was 1850, and this was the year that George Merriweather decided humans would no longer be lost in the proverbial darkness of ignorance when it comes to the weather. He decided now is the time 
we can predict storms and possibly save lives. George decided to harness the seemingly telepathic power of the leech, and all he needed to do was create a device. Now, <clears throat> my friends, I think every episode I tell you to stop whatever it is you're doing, to drop whatever it is in your hands, be it the wheel of a car or a baby, just drop it. And please, pick up your phone and head on over to our social media stuff. So I think I say that every episode. But for fuck's sake, I mean it now more than ever. I need you to see what was birthed from George's mind and his hands. Um, I'm going to pull it up right here for myself, and I'm going to give you a second as well. Okay, you're also going to need a second to figure out just what the fuck you're looking at exactly. Um, my friends, <clears throat> behold, an atmospheric electromagnetic telegraph conducted by animal instinct. This was the official name, but uh, George also called it the Tempest Prognosticator. I need you to take a good fucking look, and I need you to zoom in as much as possible, because there is so much detail. I want one. I'm not going to lie. I, kinda, I, I think I kind of want one. Um, and for the folks who are making the drastic and unforgivable mistake of not looking at this thing, I will describe it to you right now, so you can thank me later. <clears throat> Please imagine a carousel. Yes, you heard me. A carousel. And the roof of the carousel is 24 karat gold and composed of flamboyantly ornate designs. And so is, of course, the circular base. It's 24 karat gold, circular, flamboyant designs. However, this carousel has no ponies or horses, no deer or funny frogs or whatever the fuck your traditional carousel has to ride. No, my friends. Around the Tempest Prognosticator are 12 tiny glass bottles each containing a live leech, just hanging out in about an inch and a half of water. And please, if you will, focus on the neck of each bottle. Inside them is, you guessed it, a piece of whalebone. Sure. Now please, trace with your eyes from each whalebone a wire. A wire that goes up the carousel to, the, to a bulbous point, and inside the round, also very ornately decorated ball is a large metal bell. And at the end of each of these wires is a small hammer, which is positioned to strike this metal bell. Now, what the fuck is the point of all of this and how does it work? I am so glad you asked. In theory, quote, when a storm is approaching, the changes in atmospheric pressure will, will drive the leeches out of the water and into the neck of the bottle, where they dislodge the whalebone and ring the bell at the top of the device. When several bells ring in succession, a storm is prognosticated, end quote, drop Mike from amusingplanet.com. My friends, my non-leechy business goose, I bet you're absolutely dying to know if this wondrous Dr. Seussian contraption worked. Like, was it reliable and shit? Okay, well, hold on to your cheeks, because the first thing you need to know is why Meriwether designed this fucking thing as a circle. Okay, you have to brace yourself. This guy's heart was just gold. Oh boy. In an essay describing his invention, George referred to his leeches as the, quote, jury of philosophical counselors, and he decided to place them in glass bottles in a circle to prevent them from feeling, quote, the affliction of solitary confinement, end quote. <laughs> I know. Can you? Can you even? 
he cared for the welfare of leeches. <laughs> I can't even. And again, like any good scientist, George tested out his new prognosticator for a full fucking year, documenting the behavior of every leech in a letter every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And he sent these letters to the also incredibly named Henry Belcher. You know, Henry, uh, president of the Whitby L Literary and Philosophical Society. George chose this tracking method because, quote, multiple postal deliveries every day ensured that the letter would be postmarked date and time before a storm developed, thus proving the prediction true, end quote, from whitbymuseum.org.uk. <clears throat> Excuse me. My friends, George believed in his invention and his leeches so much so he just went ahead and built, and built six different versions of the prognosticator, each designed to, quote, suit differing pockets, as Meriwether anticipated that they would be wild, widely used on ships and around the world, end quote. He dreamed big, and that was also from the Whitby Museum site. So, my friends, we have to ask ourselves, did it work? Well, to be honest, my friends, it did. Uh, once. Okay, join me, will you, in the <laughs> medical news section of the 1850s journal Neglected Science by J. Jekin? Jekin? J. Jekin. Let's go with that. Um, I will have a screenshot of this old-timey paper on our, so on our social media stuffs, but of course I will read it, and it reads thusly. Quote, a philosophical invention from, the, from Whitby appears in the form of a tempest prognosticator, whose accuracy is said to have been tested by the storms of the last 12 months. The inventor is Dr. Merriweather. We have ascertained the above statement to be correct, and that the apparatus is to be exhibited for the first time at the Great Exhibition, when a pamphlet will be published, giving the whole account of the discovery the disastrous storm of the month of October 1850 was foretold by the Tempest prognosticator and communicated by letter to the president of the Whitby Philosophical Society 51 hours and a half before it took place. We understand that Dr. Merriweather intends to confine the manufacturer of these instruments to the artisans of Whitby. End quote. Well, goddamn. My friends, you heard the old-timey newspaper, right? George's prognosticator uh, predicted a storm. Yeah, and the marvel was to be showcased in the 1851 Great Exhibition. And yes, it was. And yes, I'm sure as hell George was beaming that day. Can you see him now just joyously handing out those pamphlets, probably throwing them at faces in the crowd? I sure can. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's as much joy George is going to feel this day. For you see, just like the platina lamp he invented back in the 30s, uh, the Tempest prognosticator failed to take off. I know. Turns out, that same year, at the 1851 Great Exhibition, there was another storm-predicting device. The fucking drama, right? And let's just say this device was a little smaller, like way smaller, and it wasn't filled with leeches. It wasn't... <laughs> Sorry. Just the things I find myself saying. Um, yeah, it wasn't filled with leeches or anything that you need to feed. Um, my friends, the British government decided to use Robert Fitzroy's 
storm glass instead. Now, what the fuck is that? Uh, yes, there is a photo of it in today's post. Please take a look. But don't expect grandeur. It's a reasonably sized glass tube filled with distilled water, ethanol, potassium nitrate, ammonium, chloride, and camphor. When there's a dramatic change in temperature, the water grows cloudy and crystals could form. Uh, Let's just say to sailors and seaside residents, this is a bit more reliable than a leech. And uh, just like that, the Tempest prognosticator was lost to history. So lost, in fact, the original is long gone, and only a replica stands in the Whitby Museum. And now, its memory lives with you. So I guess dreams never die, right? After the break, we're moving on from dreams to nightmares. Uh, A real-life nightmare struck three states back in the 1920s, and my friends, no one, nothing saw it coming. Leeches won't save us, but can we save ourselves? Stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we're back. We are so back. And my friends, I hope you remember to charge up your time machine during the break because we're skipping forward from the 1850s to the roaring 1920s. And when I say roaring, boy howdy, I mean it literally. You'll you'll see. So please join me, will you, in the tiny but bustling rail town of Gorham, Illinois. Now, if you have absolutely no idea where this is, I wouldn't blame you. Back in the last census, about 250 people lived here. That's it, just 250. Today, Gorham is a shadow of its former self. But in 1923, March 18th, 1923 to be exact, about 500 people called Gorham home and its central location in the United States meant at this time, when the railroads drove the economic heartbeat of America, Gorham was one of the busiest crossings So, where the fuck is it exactly? All right, well, don't worry, I've got you. Please picture Lake Michigan. There it is, thank you. Now, to its southwest is the state of Illinois, and in the very southwest corner of Illinois is a tiny, tiny town called 
Gorham. Now, to the immediate left of Gorham is the state of Missouri, and to the right is Indiana. So what you've got here is a town that's a gateway to the Midwest and the Northeast, if you will. Anywho, that means this fucking place is a poppin'. There's trains and people are everywhere, just laser-focused on capitalism, and no one seems to notice a peculiar fog in the distance, uh, y'all. Um, it's a black wall with no discernible shape, but if your eyes follow the wall up, this black mass just blends into the dark clouds above it. The wall is growing wider, which means it's getting closer. So close, in fact, you can now hear it. Quote, what begins as a low hum will soon crescendo into a deafening shriek that one witness later describes as a whistling, siren-like death song. The fog you see is actually a sheath of heavy rain. Hiding behind it is the most powerful tornado in recorded history. End quote. Well, ooh, it's got chills, my friends. If you're already terrified, you should be. And that also means we've begun everyone's favorite segment, Let's Read from a Book, Motherfucker. That's right, we're sticking with Cody Cassidy's latest How to Survive History. Today, we're going to attempt to survive what the history books call the Tri-State Tornado. Now, if you're not familiar, as an introduction, I'd like to tell you a few fun facts about this literal freak of nature. Now, let's start with your average tornado. Uh, these last for less than 10 minutes, but the Tri-State averaged, quote, 59 miles per hour over three and a half hours for 219 miles across three states. Yeah, mm-hmm. And while the average tornado advances at 30 miles per hour, when the tri-state tornado crossed the Mississippi River and smacked into Gorham, it was moving at an astonishing 73 miles per hour, the fastest in recorded history, end quote. Okay. Okay, so did you shit your pants yet? Okay, it's okay. I did too. Unfortunately, we're just getting started. I need to drop a few more number bombs on you, okay? Let's talk about wind speed. I still can't wrap my head around this, but here we go. Uh, meteorologists use the Enhanced Fujita Scale, or the EF, to classify a tornado's power. EF5 is the maximum on the scale, and that means a tornado has reached wind speeds of 200 miles per hour. Doing some math, clickety-clack, taking into account the damage and how far things were thrown, it's estimated Tri-State's winds easily exceeded 300 miles per hour. Quote, it peeled pavement, unzipped railroad tracks, hurled a hundred ton locomotives, tossed tractors into homes, and splintered nearly every building it touched. It cut a mile-wide gash through southern Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana, and killed at least 695 people, double the death toll of the second deadliest tornado in American history. End quote. Wow, I got chills again. That is also a lot to take in. And I bet you have a few questions about Tri-State, like how, fucking how, how in the holy hell can something like this form 300 mile per hour winds? Yeah, great questions. Experts like Robert Maddox, the former director of the National Severe Storms Laboratory, experts like him, they're still trying to figure it out a century, a century later. Now, we have a general idea of how Tri-State formed, but that's getting ahead of ourselves again. 
let's start with your average tornado first. Quote, at their core, tornadoes are the explosive, unpredictable results of an atmospheric contortionist act that occurs when air masses of different temperatures and humidities collide. Smaller versions of these collisions occur every day all over the world, but the North American Midwest hosts more than 75% of the world's tornadoes because its long flatlands provide a unique, unobstructed atmospheric pathway from Mexico to Canada. As a result, collisions in the Midwest play out on a continental scale." End quote. So, my friends, join me, will you, on the seemingly impossible journey and remarkable series of coincidences that occurred between several jet streams which Frankensteined the tri-states. Let's begin two days, two days before it hit Gorham on March 16th, when jet, streams, uh, when jet stream winds traveling west to east over Montana basically created a vacuum called a low-pressure trough. Quote, the vacuum sucked in hot, dry air from the deserts of Mexico, cool, moist air from the Gulf, and the frigid air from over the southern Canadian tundra. End quote. My friends, the hot air from Mexico and the moist air from the Gulf was sucked in so rapidly, by the next day, on March 17th, it had already traveled 1,500 miles to settle over Missouri. And if that combo sounds bad, it is. <laughs> quote, when hot, dry desert air collides with the cool air from the Gulf, the two blocks of air don't blend together. They slam and slide like a scrum in a rugby match. This vertical line of impact, called the dry line, begins at the ground and then rises tens of thousands of feet into the high atmosphere. But as it does, it doesn't remain perpendicular. Instead, shifting winds above the ground can push the hot, dry Mexican air over the cool, wet air from the Gulf. This arrangement, called a cap, is an atmospheric pipe bomb, end quote. Huh, that's not, not good. My, my very concerned business goose, I could see the look on your face. Yes, I could see it. Uh, you may also be asking, well, if this eventually forms a pipe bomb per se, who or what sets it off? We haven't mentioned the uh, frigid air from Canada yet, so are you saying we should blame Canada? Um, <laughs> In this case, my friends, yes, we can blame the third ingredient, which happens to be the cold southerly winds from Canada, which just so happened to have arrived right on time on March 18th. These cold winds essentially boosted the moist Gulf air through the warm cap, rising to a height of 60,000 feet. Once the updraft lost its heat, it, quote, dumped its water to form clouds and rain, and lost more heat in the chemical conversion. Now supercooled and dense, the air plummeted down, smashing into the earth and ejecting outward. End quote. My friends, with all this movement, the swirling winds inside this cloud began to rotate one another, creating a spinning, saucer-looking thundercloud that many Americans are familiar with. Many of us have unfortunately seen the greenish turquoise glow these supercells emit. That color, by the way, is thanks to how light filters through the rain and ice that's about to pummel you. <laughs> and if you're lucky, that's all that happens. Hail, thunder, lightning, torrential rain, powerful winds. A terrifying storm is the best 
case scenario. And thankfully, most supercells don't form tornadoes. For this to occur, the supercell's updraft needs to be strong enough where it can lift and stretch into a horizontal vortex. <laughs> By 1 p.m. on March 18th, the extraordinary winds of Tri-State merged perfectly. And quote, according to witnesses, the tornado began to both narrow and elongate in the classic and easily identifiable tornadic formation. But uh, within minutes, the small twisting tornado grew to more than a mile in diameter. Soon afterwards, a 49-year-old farmer named Samuel Flowers became its first victim when he was overtaken just outside Ellington, Missouri, while trying to escape on horseback." End quote. My friends, you might think you and I being in Gorham, Illinois, essentially 100 miles away from Mr. Flowers, that that would spare us. I mean, if we were dealing with your average tornado, yes, you'd be exactly right. But not only did Tri-State have radically different jet streams colliding with one another, I forgot to mention the wild card. A fucking random-ass coincidence. Quote, Tri-State's unprecedented stamina begins with an entirely unrelated rain squall that happened to pass through earlier that morning. The rain chilled the air over southern Illinois and created a huge temperature difference over a small area. Because tornadoes feed off both warm and cool air, the rain shower laid what amounted to a narrow, tornado-friendly track across the Midwest. In an unprecedented display of cohesion, the supercell, the dry line, and the low-pressure system all moved in unison, straight down that narrow band, like a blindfolded motorcyclist blasting down a tightrope. End quote. <laughs> oh, God, my friends. In sum, this thing was given a red carpet, thanks to that random squall. An unobstructed red carpet, about 219 miles long, gaining it access to three states. Now, by 2.30 in the afternoon, Tri-State would have made its way from Mr. Flowers in Missouri to us in Gorham, Illinois. We're looking at it, we hear it, and by the way, it's moving towards us at 70 miles per hour. What in the holy fuck do we do? Now, you might think to hop into a car and try to outrace it, driving perpendicular to its path, uh, but my time-traveling business goose, it's not 2023, it's 1925. And the most popular car at the time was a 20-horsepower T-Model Ford, topping out at a wee 45 miles per hour, so that's a no-go. If you think to yourself, oh shit, I'll just hunker down in the car then. Well, if you think this, please don't. <laughs> please don't. Honestly, no car today would save you from Tri-State's crushing wind power. And in 1925, this Ford would certainly be a death trap. Quote, You'll, you'll be stuck inside a car with no safety features of any kind, save for the horn. Uh, it has no seat belts, no airbags, a large plate glass window, and aerodynamics that make it a kite in high winds, end quote. Okay, well, sounds like you and I, we need to get real close and hide. Robert Maddox, remember him? He is the uh, former director of the National Severe Storms Laboratory. His advice is to find a building with as many walls and rooms as possible. And if by some chance we have the time to check names on a mailbox, well, let's keep an eye out for the home of T.L. Spillman, because his house was one of the few 
that escaped total destruction. Now, once we barge our way in, we're gonna wanna find a large pot from the kitchen. I swear to God, this, I'm serious. Okay, and get me one too. Okay, so two large pots. Thank you. Uh, then we're gonna hunker down in one of the smallest rooms we could find, like a closet. And once we're inside, cover your head with that pot, okay? Use it as a helmet. You're gonna wanna do this for real. Quote, small rooms and stew pots are both good ideas because the primary danger in a tornado is not the strong winds themselves, but what the wind throws. Tri-state will hurl cars, tractors, trains, and in one case will drive a wood plank 16 inches into a tree. As the tornado passes over you, thousands of splinters, nails, and two-by-fours and train cars will fill the air. And every solid wall, bathtub, or stew pot you can place between yourself and those millions of projectiles might make the difference. End quote. So, so if uh, Mr. T.L. Spillman didn't make a large dinner the previous night, and we were able to shove our asses into a broom closet, we just might make it. And as quickly as it arrived, at 70 miles per hour, Tri-State is gone. And on its way through the rest of southern Illinois and onto Indiana. In the aftermath, half of Gorham's 500 residents suffered injuries. Half. 34 died. It's 34 to 500. Statistically speaking, and in terms of natural disasters, being at Gorham on March 18th, 1925, at around 2.30 p.m., is one of the worst places you could have found yourself. But it does make for one hell of a survival story to tell at parties. <laughs> the end. Ah, oh, my God. Thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends about the... Uh, the Tempest Prognosticator, the wonder that is the Tempest Prognosticator about the leeches and a man's dreams and how they shattered. Uh, but not with you, because that dream still lives on. And uh, thanks for surviving the worst tornado in American history with me. That was pretty cool. Um, let's not do it again. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thanks. And please, stay interesting. <laughs>